I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Good morning and welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we've got another great show for you this week. We're going to be talking about motivation and cheating in tennis, starting with the juniors and really going all the way through the process. And we have John Falbo back with us this week for part seven of our chats, which is awesome. So uh, when we come back, we're going to have John Falbo. Don't miss a thing on Parenting Aces. Be sure to sign up for our free e-newsletter so you're among the first to know when a new article is posted. Simply go to ParentingAces.com and enter your email address, then click subscribe in the subscribe for updates box on the right side of the page. Welcome back to Parenting Aces. I'm your host, Lisa Stone. And John, are you with us? I'm with you, Lisa. I'm happy to be so. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to you for coming back on. And this is number seven for us. So um, it should be old hat by now, but I feel like every time we talk, there is a new set of stories, a new set of issues to tackle, and you always bring a unique perspective. So thank you for that. Very welcome. And I'm, as always, I'm very, very glad to be here. Awesome. Well, let's jump right in because we've only got an hour, and with you, that hour seems like about 10 minutes. So <laughs> let's, let's get started. And, and I want to kick off this week's show discussing the whole notion of motivation, and especially as it applies to young junior players. I get a lot of questions from readers and listeners saying, you know, my kid just doesn't seem to be motivated to put in the work, and what can I do to motivate them? And, um, there, you know, it's, it's a lot of questions along those lines, and I certainly had those same questions with my own tennis-playing kids. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. And, and just as a reminder to my audience, John's son is not a tennis player per se, but he is a world champion professional chess player. So this whole idea of motivating a young person to practice and work on the things they need to work on to reach the highest levels is something that John is very familiar with, not just in his own tennis development, but also in his parenting life. Okay, so now I'll be quiet, John, and let you talk. No, oh, thank you for thank you for mentioning Paul, by the way. And you know, the first thing that strikes me when you when you said what you did is for people to be asking you, you know, about the motivation. I I think the first thing that needs to take place is does does the child really love what he's doing? He or she really love what he he or she is doing, and if that is truly intact, then you have something to work with because. If that's not intact, I don't think you can force that kind of thing, you know? Sure, sure. But, you know, here's my question for you, and this is something that only now that I'm kind of on the backside of this whole tennis journey am I realizing, and that is, you know, how how much work do these kids actually have to do day in and day out, week after week, month after month, year after year, in order to get to a place where they can play 
high-level college tennis, because let's face it, the majority of these kids are not going to be making a living on the professional circuit. They're, they're going to go to college, hopefully, have a great college experience, and then that's going to be the end of their highest level uh, com- competition. So, mm-hmm. you know, when, when we parents worry that our kid's not out hitting, at, hitting against the garage door at 5 a.m. before school or isn't excited to, you know, go to the gym and, and do footwork drills for an hour after they've already been at school all day and then been on a tennis court for two hours, is that really a problem? Well, the other thing that struck me first with your question at the beginning was when a lot of people question motivation, I think maybe there hasn't been enough work done between the parent and the child to sit. And, you know, everyone is so busy. So many people are so busy. And until you sit down and until you identify really specifically what the goals are, because like you said, it could be college. It may not be college. It may be to be a pro. It may be to play through high school. It may be to be top 100 in the country and not play in college. It may be to be a high-level college player. We don't know. And so there's, there's some real rooting out, if you will, that needs to happen. That can only happen through conversation and communication between parent and child. And if, if that's not happening... There's really no way to guess at it. So if there's a problem with motivation, to me, that means there's a communication gap. That means either the parent has expectations that maybe they're not aware of or certainly the child is not aware of or maybe the child is misinterpreting. Maybe the child has certain desires that haven't been communicated with the parents. And so if if you're on different pages, that's usually what I find is drains the motivation. When, when I see highly, highly motivated children and parents, I see them on the same page. And you, you mentioned with Paul and I, and there, you know, it waxes and wanes, if you will. Like there are times where everything is very, very clear and everyone is very, very motivated. And then there are other times where certain conflicts pop up and you have to sit and you really have to to be very honest and to identify them. And most people in tennis, I, I haven't met too many dumb people in tennis. Like the, the actual pursuit, you know, it, it attracts pretty highly intelligent people, uh, despite how some of them act sometimes. They're actually at the <laughs> core pretty, pretty, pretty intelligent people, have the ability to reason, you know, have the ability to think things through. And so what I'm finding is I, as I look around and as I see different different situations unfold is the communication gap is where the problem is. And so if that communication gap can be filled with some real honest communication from the parent and from the child, like, hey, what do you really want out of this? And, hey, what do you really expect of me out of this? And, hey, you know, this is how much money we're talking about spending. And these are the kinds of hours you're talking about spending. This is the time commitment. This is the money commitment. Everybody can be willing to do this, but we're not going to do it ambiguously. So I think that the love of what you do, like, 
and, and that's something that really requires honesty. Not do you like it, not do you prefer it, not do you sort of want to do it every now and then. Do you love it in a way where you can go through the hard stuff? Because there's going to be hard stuff. That's number one. And then number two, okay, if this is something you really do love, then we have to set a time each day or a time each week or a time each month where we sit down and constructively communicate about, okay, what exactly do you want out of it? And what do I expect? And what is our budget? And what what are we talking about money-wise, time-wise, expectation-wise, and really get down into that? Because when you get down into that, that's where you find that you can get on the same page with one another. And once you're on the same page, I can almost guarantee you that the motivation will surface because the, the child won't feel like uh, he or she is letting the parent down because no child wants to let wants to disappoint their parent. I don't care <clears throat> how belligerent they might become as a teenager or how how um, non-communicative they may seem at times. They never want to let their parents down. And really, no, I don't think any parent wants to force their child through a really nasty competitive process. So it's like there's there's a premise there that both people actually care about one another. And if that's the case, which I believe it is in most instances, then there's going to have to be a lot of communication to get on the same page. And when both people are feeling good, about the goals and the objectives and they're on the same page, I think that that's when you see the, the most motivation. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It's it's interesting. I, I went back and listened to a podcast that I did with Eric Buderak um, from a few months ago. And yep. one of the things that he talked about was reaching a point in his tennis where he wasn't enjoying it anymore. And he told his parents he wanted to take a break and how his parents handled that break, which was brilliant, by the way. Um, I only wish I had had that amount of (laughs) uh, insight when my son was coming up. But, um, you know, I think knowing when your child needs to take a break, even if they are on a path to the highest level of the game, you know, understanding that taking a month off or three months off is okay that, you know, it's not going to ruin them. And I'm, I'm using air quotes here. Um, it's not going to ruin them for reaching their goals. Do you agree yeah. with that? I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'll give you a specific example. In Paul's case, my son, he was, he was a month and a half away from an event where he was going to compete in chess for $35,000. And he was, for, for his age, which right now is 15, for him to win that prize for himself would have meant the world to him. And it would have paid for many entry fees for him. It would, would have, you know, he, the way he does his money and, and things that would have given him a chance to go out and treat himself with something like a new pair of headphones because he saves the majority of his money. But the, the, that six weeks before, he looked at me after many months of training and he said, you know, because he was one of the top five favorites at that point to win the money. And he said, you know, I don't believe that I can do it. 
And that's when you got to have a real conversation. And what came out of that was not that he wasn't willing to go through the competition, that he was buckling under the weight of that. It came out that he needed, he felt like he had been pushing himself to the point where things were not adding up in his head properly. He wasn't able to think clearly, not so much because of the competitive pressure, but because of the intense preparation that he had maybe mismanaged a little bit before that, which is everyone does that from from highest to lowest in any sport, in any endeavor. Sometimes you mismanage and you don't know you're doing it at the time, but sometimes you just mismanage. Sometimes you want it so much that you mismanage. Sometimes you don't want it enough, but you don't know that. So he didn't play. And he ended up taking several months because he was extremely disappointed. I was disappointed for him. But the way I look at that is this. There's no way if a child loves something and he really works at it or she really, really wants it, a few months here and there, they're developing a base with all of their work that will not disappear. All the connections in their brain and their body will still be there no matter what. That will be there for years and years and years and years. So then the question is, cost-benefit-wise, do a few months here and there, if they feel like they need to refresh and come back to what they really love and gain some, some traction and some clarity in their mind, could that be beneficial? And the reason I agree with you is this. The answer is yes, not because it won't ruin what they're pursuing, but because I believe it's best for their health. And to me, for him, that's the number one concern no matter what. I don't care how much money we've spent at the end of the day. I care within context of pursuing a craft. But when you talk about someone's health and well-being, everything goes out the window. And it's like, hey, look, if this – and in Eric's case, I bet you, I don't know, but I bet you his parents got together and said, look, if he's feeling this way, it's not going to be best for his health to constantly grind and put himself through this. It's one thing to push to achieve. It's another thing to grind yourself down in an unhealthy way where you really start hitting the law of diminishing returns. And so mm-hmm. I agree with you completely. If someone needs to take a month or two or three or whatever it takes to regain their balance and to see more clearly as it's best for their health, I don't think we could have a more clear example of six months off with Federer and coming back in the Australian Open. And if you notice what's transpired, He then took another three to four weeks and rested, came back for Miami, uh, Indian Wells in Miami. He's now taking another several weeks of rest and will not play probably until the French Open. So there's – and there's a bodybuilder that's world famous that does it this way as well. He's a Mr. Olympia champion, and he, he goes in when he goes in, and he competes really hard but then he balances out with a great deal of rest. It's active rest, but it's still rest, so he can regain a balance in his mind. So I don't think the rest periods are bad at all. If it's healthy for the individual, I don't see how you can go wrong. And 
I mean, is it your belief that if a child is showing a drop off in in motivation and and let me be clear too, um, I am a believer in motivation comes from inside the person. You cannot motivate somebody else. They have to find it within themselves to want to do whatever the work is, right? Um, yeah, you can, that's, you, can help them, you can help them find it, but you're, I think you're absolutely right. You can help them find it. You can help them discover it, but it's got to be there inside of them to begin with. For sure. So if you then notice that your child's motivation is dropping off for whatever reason, maybe they have made new friends that are doing something completely unrelated to tennis and they want to take part, your child wants to take part in that. Or, you know, maybe there's a, I don't know, something happening at school that they want to participate in that means they are not going to be at practice on the tennis court every day like they normally are. Whatever it is, um, if I'm hearing you correctly, your approach would be, by all means, take that break, do that other thing, pursue that other interest, and if the love and the passion for the tennis is still there, then you'll come back to it. And if it's not and you choose not to come back to it, then that's okay too and we just need to move forward from that point. Yeah, and I I think there has to be also honest communication like, look, you know, from an investment perspective, there's time, energy, goodwill, money, all of these types of investments. And there has to be clear communication in my view, with the child, especially as they get in their teens, to say, look, it's not about loving you as an individual. Of course, I'm your parent. I love you. You love me. You're my child. That's off the table. That's a given. Now, this is a cost-benefit type of pursuit. And if I'm going to invest in travel, in tournaments, in um, hotel uh, entry fees, all of the coaching, all of the the prerequisites, if you will, that you need in order to do what you want to do, then you don't owe me for that. This is not a debt for you, but what you do owe me is a clarity of purpose. So you have to understand until you have that clarity of purpose, there can't be an equal and opposite investment like that. Once you have that clarity of purpose, I have no problem investing like that. But there has to be give on both sides. We cannot just go in and invest whole hog and have you unclear about what it is you're pursuing. So I think there has to be a really honest conversation. In addition to, look, if you want to go pursue something, another craft or something else with your friends, Let's also make an honest accounting of everything you've invested in the sport so far because you may not remember some of what you've invested, all the hours when you were younger, all the time it took to get you to the point where you've started to perfect the craft. So to think that you're going to go into something else and just right away experience a great deal of success is naive, number one. Number two when you give up something that you really love in exchange for, say, a, a um, relationships with friends or things like that, 
it may be good for your health temporarily, but you also have to understand, you know, people do crazy things. So someone you think is your friend one day may or may not be your friend the next day, and you're investing in that. You're investing time, energy, uh, yourself into that. When you go out on a tennis court and you hit ball after ball after ball and you invest properly with good technique, with a good mindset, um, with a good fundamental foundation, you are going to improve. You are going to get results in a window that you can measure. When you invest in doing something socially, yes, it may be good for you health-wise temporarily, but you have to understand also you may have that friend today. You may not have that friend six months from now. And if that is the case, what have you sacrificed in your pursuit of something you love? One of the things my dad always told me is always, always, always keep something that you love as a craft to do and to pursue because it will never let you down. If you give to it, it will give back to you. It will get, you will learn about yourself. You will learn about other people. Uh, you'll feel good about um, achieving in it. And he, and he always used to say that's not necessarily the same correlation with people. Some relationships you'll be very happy with. Some relationships you won't be so happy with. But with a chosen pursuit that you really love, it's an incredible payoff. Because even if you don't achieve some of your goals, you learn a ton about yourself. You learn a ton about the skills, the coping mechanisms, and the skills internally that you're going to need for the rest of your life. So I think these kinds of conversations need to happen in addition to, hey, of course it's okay if you take a break. But an empty okay, like, yeah, go off and do whatever you want, or yeah, okay, fine and then leaving it all on the child when the child is not mature enough to even consider some of these things we just mentioned, I think that's not a service to the child. So while, to me, you don't make the child do anything, you also don't send the child off to the wolves either. There has to be, again, quite a bit of communication and say, hey, this is fine if you do this. If you take a break, if you want to go explore with other people or something else, as long as you're not doing anything to be destructive or debilitating to yourself. At the same time, this is what you're gaining, and this is what you're giving up. And let's be really clear on your own personal kind of balance sheet, if you will, your emotional balance sheet, your psychological balance sheet, your mental balance sheet, your physical balance sheet, your whole person. Let's be really, really clear what you're gaining, and what you're giving up, and then do what you feel is best. Right, right. I, I mean, it's just it's so complicated because when we're dealing with a sport like tennis, like you said, you know, the financial investment and the time investment are so tremendous. And that's why, you know, I just, I feel like you're absolutely right. You've got to have this honest communication on a regular basis. Um, and, you know, make sure your child, this is really what they want to do. 
and that they understand. And, and I remember having these conversations with my kid and, you know, you want to play Division One tennis. Well, you know, your coach has said in order for that to happen, you're going to need to do A, B, C, and D. And these are the milestones we need to look at. And, oh, you haven't reached this one yet. You know, are you willing to put in more work to get there? And, and I, I mean, it's just it takes a lot of work. And I think, you know, in order for us as parents to help our kids reach the highest level of whatever they pursue, the communication piece is at the root of all of it. I agree. I agree. And and you could take one very specific example of what you could do if you have a 12, 13, 14-year-old child and you're talking about what you just talked about, about playing Division One or any division in any, you know, any type of college environment because every division is good. Like the play, there are so many good players in college now that um, if you want to achieve at that level, uh, you're going to have to dedicate yourself in a, in a certain way. But something I think a lot of people don't really think of is take your child to a college team. Let them watch the practices. Let them watch what goes on. And if possible, if they're young enough, I, I, you would have to make sure of the recruiting rules, of course. And maybe it could be done off-site so as not to violate uh, recruiting. Um, of course, you want to be in compliance. You don't want the team to be in any kind of danger or risk or the coach, but play some sets if possible. You know, let let your child compete at that level. And maybe they get their ass kicked, and maybe that provides some food for thought, or maybe they're at a level already because Sometimes it's not necessarily as cut and dried as the coach saying, well, you have to do this, 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 and this. If if you're 14 and you can, like, for instance, when I was 12 or 13, I was beating Division One guys, no mm-hmm. question. So, And there are kids out there that think they're worse than they are because certain metrics, you know, you have different rankings, different rating levels. Not all of them are really genuine. There were several of us in my last year of 18s that were like somewhere around 18 or 20 in the country. Well, that wasn't because we were 18 or 20th best in the country. That was because the majority of us in that top tier didn't play hardly any events that year. So if, if there was somebody winning a national event but 15 guys were missing, you know, and and then that reflected in the ranking system, then it wasn't a genuine ranking system. And there are many ranking systems out there now that there's always a flaw or two in them. And so if you're younger and you want to get a real good idea of where you stand, find a way that's within compliance and that doesn't put anyone at risk to go play some sets with some people, play with the number six person, play with the number eight person, play with the number three person, and you'll be able to get a gauge real quick with where you stand. And it will provide inspiration in terms of what you need to do, too. Sure. And and this is the perfect opportunity to get in a quick plug for the ITA Summer Circuit, um, which is a great series of tournaments held every July 
put on by the ITA, and they use universal tennis ratings to select and seed. All the matches count toward a player's UTR, and it's high school kids and college kids playing these events. So you can do exactly what you just described, John, uh, in a tournament setting. So you still you have that pressure of being in a competitive setting. Yeah, and um, yeah. So um, yeah, and if you're I, I love those events. Yeah, and if you're if that's your goal, if you if you're starting out and you're clear with your parents and your parents are clear, like, look. Um, this this child is not going to pursue a professional career because that's a totally different animal, totally different For animal. Sure. And For so sure. if, if you know they're going to go, they're going to go to a school that they like, have a good college experience, compete hard, uh, develop themselves in these different ways, study a certain topic, et cetera, et cetera. These kinds of events that you describe, well, you actually see people there every day in the grind that you can sit with. And say, okay, look, what school do you go to? And what number do you play? And you do that enough with like three, four, five, six people, and you can sit and watch matches. And then you can play practice. Even if you get knocked out of the event, you can play practice sets. And in a, in a week's time, if you do it right, with a goal of a match a day, either in the tournament or in practice, and a goal of talking to, like, one or two people a day that actually participate on college teams, then by the end of that week, your money that you've spent will be well spent, much better than a recruiting trip, I can tell you that, because you're only getting to see certain aspects on a recruiting trip, many times only what they want you to see. But when you're actually playing with the players and interacting and getting the real information and then also seeing uh, where you stack up and how you stack up uh, with real-time type results, then to me that's money well spent. You're getting good data at that point. For sure, for sure. And, and you know, circling back to this whole idea of motivation – I mean, there's no greater motivator in my mind for a kid who has college tennis as their goal to be on the court with actual college players and then to hang out with them courtside, you know, maybe going to grab lunch in between matches or whatever, um, and doing exactly as you said, you know, talking to them about the, the ins and outs of their college life. And frankly, the high school kid doesn't really even have to ask questions. If they just sit there like a fly on the on the wall and listen to the players talk to each other, that's oftentimes more telling than even asking questions because the kids talk about their coaches, they talk about their teammates, they talk about the professors and, you know, who's uh, who's flexible in terms of turning in papers and taking tests late when you're traveling week in and week out. And things like that. So, um, yeah, that's, I, I think those are all fantastic ways to kind of boost motivation at a stage maybe in junior development where the kids are really starting to question whether they want to keep pursuing this goal. Yeah, and, and, and really we're talking once again about communication because just like the parent, like you're not going to go to one of those events consciously anyway until until you sit down and say okay look what are we what do you really love and what are we really trying to achieve here 
what are we really doing here? You know, because quite mm-hmm. frankly, whether you play tennis or not, doesn't really matter to me. I had this conversation with Paul when he was six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We had it the other day, you know, in terms of because um, people come up to him and ask him all the time, like, hey, are you going to play tennis like your dad? And he's constantly fielding that kind of question, which we knew he would. But the idea is, look, it doesn't matter to me what you want to do as long as, number one, you love it, and number two, you have a plan. And there's no plan without communication. So the the parent and the child need to be speaking the same language. And that takes a minute to get there, you know. And then when you go to these events, you need to be speaking the same language as the people on the team because they're speaking a totally different language than what, what a child coming in is going to be looking at. They don't know what that college life is like. They don't know really how the training is. They don't know really what they're in for in terms of expectation. And so all of these different arenas that you step into, if, and you and I have talked about this just in terms of, you know, your podcasts and my business stuff, and you, you have to, when you market anything, you have to speak that language. And, and I think if it's one message that can come out to, to anyone listening to this today, one of the most important things in my view is how are we communicating? Are we speaking the same language, and are we on the same page? That's a great point. That's a great point. Well, let's take a break, uh, and when we come back, we're going to tackle another heady topic for junior tennis, and that's the whole notion of cheating, which seems to be a hot topic on Parenting Aces, on on the Parenting Aces Facebook page, on Twitter, and elsewhere. And so I'm really curious to hear John's take on his experiences dealing with cheating in tennis and what advice he has for players coming up through the junior tennis and college tennis world today. When we come back, cheating in tennis. Tennisballs.com is your one-stop shop for all the latest tennis news, stories, and photos from around the world. Their talented writers share insights from the Pro Tour, the latest tennis technology, and behind-the-scenes looks at your favorite tennis tournaments and events. Check out Tennisballs.com. That's 10sballs.com. Thanks for tuning in to Parenting Aces. We are back with this week's guest, John Falbo. And, uh, John, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the topic of cheating in tennis. What are your experiences with that or what were your experiences coming up? Was the cheating as rampant when you were a kid as it seems to be today? It, it was not. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't. It didn't happen. It definitely happened. Uh, and it happened at many times at precise times, at very important times, because as you improve uh, in the sport, you start to recognize <clears throat> even rudimentary ideas like what the score is and when important moments are and, and this kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, playing the score, even if it's in a generally – uh, accepted idea of how you play the score 
and uh, very general strategic type of ideas. Um, so it happened. But what I'm seeing today is, is on a whole nother level. It's on a whole nother level. And it, it's not... <laughs> It's not just the cheating that I'm seeing that's on a whole nother level. If you want to take it to like a, a humanity kind of idea, it's the lying that I'm seeing that's on a whole nother level. It's the acceptance of lying and the digestion of that and the acceptance of cheating and the digestion, digestion of that as if that is a natural part of the parameters of both relationships and and the sport when you say lying give give an example of what you mean i i see more around me today uh an ease with which um many children can look at their friends or look at their parents or look at other people and simply lie looking them right in the eye, you know, looking them in the eye with all sincerity or appeared sincerity and lie with, with a, a preconceived idea that, Hey, if I get what I want, it's okay to do this. And I think and that justify the means. Yes. In many ways. And, as opposed to a fundamental process, not really understanding that when they get in the real world, and my my we've talked about my son Paul more in this episode than we have in I think a combination of the other the other episodes that we've <laughs> done. But he he loves he loves this uh, this show called Shark Tank. Um, right. I don't know if you've seen it, and Mark Cuban is in it, the owner of Dallas Mavericks, and some other. A lady from QVC, et cetera. And they're, 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 they're effectively assessing whether they would invest in businesses coming on. And what you'll see with a lot of the people that come on is they'll give this great, like, first opening idea. It sounds like an infomercial when they're talking. It doesn't even sound real. It sounds like they're, they're really bad used car salesmen. Cause a really good salesman, you don't even know he's selling you. But with them, it's they're like, hey, you know, it sounds literally like they're trying to do a, a 1970s Oscar Mayer baloney commercial, right? And <laughs> right. They, and it's it's terrible. And then once they root in, most of the ideas don't hold water. Some of them do, but most of them don't because they find out when they vet the process that there are li- there are lies or inconsistencies somewhere. And then when they call them on it, they either cry or they get really uneasy or they get overly aggressive. And what what these children don't understand, in my view, is when you deal with very sophisticated people and you lie, those lies are going to be able to be vetted. And once they're vetted, you're finished. So by by partaking in lying consistently and lying in a way that you feel is okay to get what you want, you're genuinely, immaturely capping yourself in terms of your prospects and your advancement and your achievement because your lying actually keeps you in a space once someone recognizes it that you will never be trusted 
And at the highest levels of everything, be it money, be it anything you want to achieve, trust is vital. It's vital. Someone could have the best idea in the world, and if you cannot trust them, you're either going to set them up with terms that shackle them completely so they cannot harm you and then take advantage of their idea, or you're just not going to deal with them. And that's, that is my approach. I don't care how good an idea is. I don't care how much money it's making. I do not care. If I cannot trust that person, I won't deal with them, period. And you see that come out in Shark Tank a lot. And I would suggest to you that the cheating that we're seeing in tennis in the juniors coming up is a reflection of that kind of, that kind of idea blossoming I don't know if blossoming is the right word because it's so destructive, but that kind of idea taking root in the fabric of children growing up right now. There's a lot of really bright kids growing up with a lot of good ideas, but in terms of the fabric and the ease with which some of them can lie, they're setting themselves up to be extremely disappointed, and, and I feel the same way on the court. If you get to any high level at all, you're going to have umpires. And those umpires are not right all the time. <clears throat> but if you're blatantly cheating, there's going to be people that see. And you're literally, not to mention if you get to a pro level, you're not to mention that colleges are going to have instant replay before long. And so you, you cap yourself in terms of your ability to achieve simply by the fact that you're not being honest with yourself and with how you're going about your craft. Well, so let me ask you this, and it's kind of a two-part thing. First of all, do you agree that cheating falls under the, the umbrella of lying? I mean, cheating is a form of lying, right? So, yeah. So I guess... My my question is, and and I've had this discussion with other guests on this podcast, and you know, with just with other people in person as well, is some people say you just got to learn to to deal with it. You know, you got to be tough enough on the court to just ignore it. Don't hit so close to the lines. Make sure you call the score out after every point. Make sure you're in charge of changing the game score on the side changes, et cetera, et cetera. Like the onus is on the honest person, right? My, my feeling with all of it is I've, I've talked to too many people who have said to me, my kid played tennis. They, they enjoyed it, decided to play a tournament. The cheating that went on at the tournament was so awful that my kid quit. They just decided they didn't want to be in a sport where people could cheat like that and get away with it. And so they left the sport. And so I'm kind of, I'm not kind of, I am of the mindset that, no, the onus is not on the honest kid to learn how to buck up and deal with it. The onus is on the sport and those in charge of the sport to call out the cheaters, to penalize the cheaters in a substantial manner that will cause them to either stop cheating or 
you know, let them quit playing tennis um, and not punish the people that are in it in an honest manner and working hard to achieve a high level in an honest way. What What's your feeling on that? Well, and I, I want to preface what I'm going to say by saying this. I'm not skirting what you asked me. And my response will, <laughs> no, my response will eventually reveal that. But okay. it's like if I, if I go to Subway and they say, uh, do you want pickles or onion? And I say, well, you know, we've had this talk before. I, I want uh, pesto or I want guacamole and they don't have it. The two options you're presenting are, I think both of them come into play. Okay. okay. I think, Got it. I think coming into, Coming into the sport, I think you have to understand that there are going to be people that cheat. That's that's the way it is. You know, like going into business, there are people that steal. Uh, going into anything, there are people that are going to be looking to uh, find any edge with absolutely zero, and I'm not talking about a religious compass. I'm not talking about a a any other kind of compass other than an internal moral compass that says, look, what can I sleep with at night? What is what is right or wrong in my interpretation? Like there are, there are several people that don't even, that doesn't even compute because they've grown up with no consequence in their life. So, so they don't even come, they don't even go to that step. What's right or wrong. And that is the way it is. And so, in that way, what you first described, yes, you do have to be very diligent. Yes, you do have to call the score out. Yes, you do have to be ready to get an umpire at a moment's notice and not <clears throat> accept what's going on. Don't accept that they cannot provide you an umpire. Don't accept that they cannot provide you assistance with someone who is actively cheating with intent, if you will. Because I think that teaches the child that they need to stand up for themselves, that they cannot expect for it to be a perfect world in a world that's far from perfect. So that's one side. The other side that you just – the second part that you brought up is, yes, there should be stiff penalties. But the problem is how do you prove intent versus someone just missing a call? And that gets into then judging in terms of their character and making mis assessments, misinterpretations. And so there there needs to be a way to figure out, look, what are the stiff penalties and how are they enforced? For instance, if you get overruled for a third time, then what is the once we can consider it a missed call. Twice, well we're starting to get iffy, but in the heat of competition we understand. At number three, we got a real problem. So an umpire is usually going to miss between three and five calls a match. Some of them won't admit that, but that's the case because they just can't see all the angles. It's impossible. And they can't keep up with the pace up in a chair. And especially if they're on ground level, they can't see for hardly at all. They have to be right on the line at ground level to even begin to see it. But once you have three bad calls from one side, then, yeah, there should start to be very, very severe penalties beginning to be imposed so that if there's a fifth bad call, 
yeah, there's probably a default at that point, you know, because at that point you've established some sort of pattern of intent. Because if you're really watching lines, you ain't making, as a player, you ain't making five bad calls. You can see on, on YouTube replays where guys will actually give other guys one call because they knew it was in and they knew someone missed it. So I agree with you and what you say and that there should be stiffer penalties. So I agree with both. Now, also, a third option, okay, is to actually communicate with the umpire and the person beforehand and during the match because it's almost part of it, – it almost has to be part and parcel of you playing the sport at this point in any sport. And I do not think the answer is to quit because I think there's a lot to be learned. Even if you get cheated and even if you lose and even if you don't stand up for yourself at first, there's a tremendous amount to be learned by going through the process and how to overcome that and not submitting to that, especially if you really love to play. Because if we go to some AAU soccer or AAU basketball or football, you're going to see some really rogue stuff happening as well. In all kinds of sport, you're going to see parents interfering when they shouldn't. You're going to see children cheating. You're going to So that's across the board. That's the world that we live in, and that's the reality, in my view. So I think a third option is to go before the match and communicate with an umpire, with the opposing player, and be able to say, look, I'm, not, I'm going to do everything I can not to cheat you. You're going to do everything you can not to cheat me, the umpire. You bring it out in the open immediately, and it, it can be a very brief conversation. And we all understand that if one of us feels like the other one missed the call and there's a dispute, then we're going to get the umpire. And then you've alerted everybody. Then you've preempted. Then you've, you've gone into some sort of prevent so that it's not a surprise to everybody. And this is not a bad idea to do before every single match, just as a part of preparation. And then if that time comes and you have to get the umpire, you've put yourself in a position of, hey, look, I'm doing the best I can here. And this is the, this is the route that I want to take. And everybody's going to respect that. You set a precedent of respect and preparation at that point. And then if it happens, you must communicate. And you've got to communicate honestly and say, look, you know, this has happened multiple times. What's going on with you? Like we're trying to have a match. Like you have to be able in the heat of the moment to communicate like that. And in some cases, it won't do a bit of good. I understand that. But it will always do good for the person that's undertaking that kind of approach. Because of the amount of thought it takes, the amount of preparation it takes, and ultimately whatever the result is, you will get better. You will improve. Your process, your game, your, your thinking, everything about you will improve in handling it that way. And whether you get cheated out of a match, you know, whether you get cheated out of a match or not, you're going to get better. And ultimately, that's the idea. Because if you keep getting better and you keep getting better over years and years and years, you're going to achieve a lot of really good stuff. 
So, I, hey, look, we had a rough group of competitors. As you and I have talked, the, the best in the history of the sport. Um, and I've seen an enormous amount of stuff happen. I've seen guys cheat, another guy cheating back and then get an umpire. Uh, I've seen, you know, and that's a, that's a, that's just a, a mild case. You know, you see guys, you see all kinds of stuff. You see guys spit on other guys. You see guys shoving other guys. You see guys cheating guys repeatedly to get back at them. And so all of these kinds of things, the question is, where does it end? How do you, how do you put a cap on the process? And I would say it comes back to what we talked about at the very beginning with everything. You have to communicate with your parents beforehand to say, look, there's a chance I'm going to get cheated here. With the umpires beforehand, like, look, we could miss some calls here, maybe on both sides unintentionally. With the other player, you know, like, look, if, if, you have it, if I have a question, it's good. If you have a question, it better be good unless you're certain, because that's where I'm coming from. And I want to compete. I don't want to be cheating. I want to compete. And if we have any kind of discrepancy here, we're going to end it. We're going to get the umpire. We're going to do what's necessary. And then at that point, you're holding everyone as accountable as you can, including yourself, the parents, the children, the umpires, the other players. That's the very best you can do, I think. You know what I'm gleaning from all this, John, which is interesting, um, is it all comes down to having a level of respect for the game, a level of respect for yourself, for your opponent, and for those in charge, the tournament officials, you know. Um, And... I think that underlies all of it. And, and what's interesting, you were talking about having, you know, as a player that you communicate with your opponent, you communicate with the official ahead of time. A lot of the tournaments that I've been to, when the kids check into the tournament desk to go play their match, you know, to get their court assignment, yeah. you'll hear the, the person at the desk say the things to the kids that you were suggesting that the kids actually say to one another and to the official. And it, it, as you're talking about all that, I, I was, you know, remembering hearing tournament desk officials say to my son and his opponent, you know, we're going to have a fair match. If, you know, the lines are in and, you know, if you have any problems, come get an official. That's what we're here for. But your approach to me seems to be, much better in that you put the responsibility on the players themselves. And after all, that's one of the reasons we love our sport, right? It's an individual sport. It teaches that kind of self-sufficiency, that self-belief, that self-reliance. And this is yet another example of how to build that self-reliance in our young players. Correct, and that's the, the the individuals at the highest level that are against coaching on court in tennis, that's precisely why they're against it. That's the primary reason, because, look, we started this game not to be world champions. No, no one that's a world champion ever knew they could be a world champion, so you didn't start that way. So why did you start the game? 
it was inspiring to you. You loved it. You loved the feel of the ball on the racket. You loved that you could learn about yourself. You loved all the things that came from it. And one of those things is self-reliance. One of those things is dealing with adversity. And so for these, for these children to be able to learn this, they have to also learn that they're the ones, the accountability starts with them and not to where you're putting the onus on them, but to where you're saying, look, a lot of these things you can relieve yourself of the worry of by simply taking responsibility and holding yourself and everyone else accountable on the front end and communicating clearly and being transparent. And then you won't have to worry about it. You won't have to be anxious about it. And you can learn a way to really keep your own personal balance sheet and everyone else's clean around you in a, in a very productive way. And I agree with you. In terms of self-reliance, you couldn't have a better example. Right, right. Well, as predicted, the hour has gone by <laughs> super fast yet again. <laughs> Say it again. It's amazing. It feels like five minutes. I, I'm telling you, I don't know what it is about our conversations, but I, I think we had a good one today. I really enjoyed kind of digging into the whole idea of motivation and cheating and what our kids need to be doing to handle those two issues and what we as parents can do to, to help them as they deal with those challenges and, and grow from those challenges. So, as always, John, Great. thank you for your insights and your, you know, your wisdom as, as all of us try and figure out this whole tennis thing. It's so crazy. Yeah, and as, as children, and this is for the parents, really, as, as children go and they listen to these podcasts, if, as, if as parents your listeners will play some of these podcasts and listen to them with their children sometimes, what the children will also learn from you and I is that communication and that respect, you know, of voicing your own view, uh, giving space for someone else to voice their view, and the beauty that comes within that and the chemistry that comes within that. There's an enormous amount that the children can learn from listening to these, not even so much in the facts we talk about or in the, in the points of view that we delve into, but also simply from the respect and the communication that comes in making a good podcast or in a good interaction. And there's an enormous amount to be learned even in that, I think. Well, I agree with you. And thank you for pointing that out. And uh, again, thanks for doing the podcast. I can't wait till next month's conversation. I'm going to have to come up with some great topics for us or uh, rely on you to come up with some good stuff and, in the meantime, to my listeners, I hope you will check out John's videos on Facebook. He he does some pretty entertaining stuff and shares some great stories <laughs> from his years coming up in the sport. So if you're on Facebook, look up John Falbo and give him a follow. He's, he's a fun one. John, thanks again, and uh, I so appreciate you and look forward to next month. And to my listeners, thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. 
If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, visit us online at parentingaces.com. As always, a huge thank you to our sponsor, tennisballs.com.